0: Hey, welcome to Win The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. Hey, hey everyone. I hope you're doing all right. We have, well, we've been having, I guess our first big real dealing with COVID here in New Zealand, which has, which has been quite a time over the past month or two. We've been, I guess, in the fortunate position. Uh, well, it is a fortunate position of having high vaccination rates and what appears to be a milder version and all that. But it's still hitting us all pretty hard. We've had COVID in our house over this past month or so, which has really slowed everything down a lot. And for some members of the household, the effects, you know, are are lingering, which is kind of sucky to deal with. So that's been what has been going on around here, which is, you know, a bit of why the podcast has been a bit quieter than I had hoped. We are sort of hovering between our own personal lockdowns and then also starting to venture out a bit more in recent days, so, you know, It's quite a time, and I I know a lot of people are just feeling spent at this point. Especially as we also navigate a world with, with you know what's going on in the Ukraine, as well as conflict that's happening in other parts of the world. That's that's hitting many people hard. Uh, And then even here at home in New Zealand, we've had you know we've had violence that's arisen, you know, partly through conspiracy and misinformation, and partly. for all sorts of complicated reasons um, and protests and so on. And so there's just, it's just so much, right? Um, so so if you're feeling a bit spent at this point, I hear you. <laughs> you're not alone. And uh, and may you find some peace and some rest in this season in some welcome places. Uh, today on the podcast, we have something that, that comes at an in-the-shift conversation from a different angle than normal, perhaps. Today I'm talking with Dr. Jeff Crabtree, and in particular about his recently published research on harassment within the music industry in Australia and New Zealand, and in particular, sexual harassment and abuse of power. And this is a topic that is close to my heart for lots of reasons, I think. Um, In particular, his research, because I have had many friends and do have many friends in the music industry over the years, uh, some of whom have had very traumatic and difficult experiences in that space. And I think also what comes to light in Jeff's work is relevant not just to the music industry, but that particular context that he's researching becomes a spotlight that helps us to understand how power and misogyny in particular function to cause pain and trauma in all sorts of places, including within the church. So we do talk about his research in the music industry, but then we also uh, broaden this and start to have a conversation around power and the way power functions and the way misogyny functions in other institutions, including the church. And Jeff has history within church spaces. Uh, And so we have some conversation around around all of these intersecting things. Um, it's wide-ranging. I think it needs to be had, and it you know it deals, I guess, with what has been a constant theme in this podcast through its entire run, and that's and that's the abuse of power, which has been a particular concern to me. Uh, look, there's a few things to say before we jump in. One is that parts of this conversation do mention in broad terms people's reporting of experiences of sexual harassment and abuse and, and even rape. We don't really get into the specifics of incidences at all, but I just want you to know that it's coming and that if that's something you don't think would be helpful to you, then feel free just to, to leave this episode. The other thing is to say that um, we come at this conversation as two white men with considerable privilege. I think, you know, Jeff is aware of this in the way he does his research, and I was aware of it as we were having this conversation. So it's important for me to say that I think this kind of conversation needs to happen in multiple spaces and at multiple levels. So as men like us, we come to this conversation from one perspective, and I hope are able to speak to some of the problems with the misogyny and power, particularly as it is used predominantly by men from our particular perspective, but it's certainly not all that needs to be said, not by a long shot, and a lot of what needs to be heard needs to be heard from women and their experiences. So um, I just want to say that, I guess, at the outset of this episode. So with all of that said, this is episode 54 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. <music> Today on the podcast we have Dr. Jeff Crabtree. Jeff is a speaker and author, a researcher, a filmmaker, a multi award winning songwriter, music producer. He's a blues performer and the author of Living with a Creative Mind. and uh, And recently his doctoral research uh, has emerged as the first ever investigation of workplace and sexual harassment in the Australian and New Zealand music industry. So welcome to the In the Shift podcast, Jeff. So good to have Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Michael Frost. <laughs> I don't get called. I don't get called that too often, you know. I I did. I think after I uh, finished my PhD, I did put it on one airline booking just to feel good about being a doctor. But after that, I got too paranoid that I'd get called on in case of a heart attack, so I uh, I I, stopped.
1: I I put it on medical book. I've got a. I put it on medical bookings (laughs) (laughs) so that the staff treat at the front desk treat me a little little bit more. Kind of, you know.
0: Well, Doctor Crabtree, um, there's. I think a lot we could talk about. I want to start with this research. Uh, that you've done in in, in your PhD. Um, and I, th- I think it's such an important conversation and, and I think it, it sort of devastatingly confirms what many might intuitively or through their own experience have, have suspected or known. Um, but I think incredibly important to have this study, to have these stories and experiences sort of brought into the public square in the way that they, they have been through this research. So... Uh, Perhaps as a way of beginning this conversation, could you give us a sense of of what motivated this particular area of research for you as a project like this? Where did this kind of begin for you?
1: Um, Some, uh, well, I've experienced, uh, personally I've experienced a long episode of bullying um, and, and, you know, as a musician. So I, uh, that was, that forms part of the background. Mm. Um, But in essence, what, the foreground was that um, my wife and I wrote a book together called "Living with a Creative Mind," and um, which was we sort of published in 2011, and then immediately. So we did everything in reverse. So we wrote the book, and then we started to do the research. So the um, the, the research, she immediately embarked on this um, PhD looking at the intersection between mental health and creativity, and and then. Halfway along that process, she said, "Look, I think you need to get into this." So we had some anecdote Apart from my own experiences, we had anecdotal stories. We had anecdotal stories of um the kind of toxic behaviour in 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 music in, in the music industry. So I went along to and to meet up with the guy who had supervised my master's degree. He'd changed universities, mm-hmm. and um, he'd gotten sort of he'd been sort of headhunted and. And went along, and we talked it through. And he said, "So, yeah, he started to say there are some stories that he'd heard of audience members, you know, somebody biting somebody biting a band member in the audience." And so we talked about the way to pitch this, and we thought the safest thing to do because I because I'm a man, um, you know, I identify as a male, um, is. can, to put it to put the research into the field as workplace harassment, given that once you start, uh, once if you are, if you're a man and you're wanting to research sexual harassment, the large um, large portion of the female community look upon you with suspicion. Mm. Well, not a large percentage, but a significant percentage mm. um, look upon you with suspicion. Like, why are you doing? You're a man. Why are you doing that? You know. So I basically. um Got got in actually on the base on the basis. This was two two thousand and sixteen was when it um, was when I was enrolling, mm. and I won a scholarship actually um, to do the research full time. And that was and then of course as I'm starting the research, which which as you know in a PhD starts with a literature review, a review of mm-hmm. the literature. It's the the unexciting part. Um, this is when. Hashtag Me Too starts to break. Right, yeah. So in 2017, Hashtag Me Too starts to break. There's a response from the women in the Australian industry called Hashtag Me No More. And then what emerges, of course, is as participants start to answer the, ad, the advertising and log in and do the survey or contact me to do the, the, um, the research, then it became about sexual harassment much more than workplace harassment. So right. I've got a lot of stories of workplace harassment, but what the over the overwhelming set of data is was from women who mm. wanted who okay, took the opportunity to sure. to report their experiences. so so in essence, what I was doing was trying to research um, Julie, my wife is doing the she's researching the psychology and I was trying to research something of the workplace environment mm. stuff. I guess broadly speaking occupational health and safety for creative people really broadly mm. um, um, but you know like as you know PhD is very narrow there's a very narrow focus there is. so yeah it was primarily the book
0: yeah and so so as you start to do this research this the emphasis on on sexual harassment and and the kind of the the gender specific feedback around that is obviously something that came out of the data yes. for you so what what kind of in a broad sense, what are the, what are the what's the kind of evidence that was emerging at that time? Then, uh, what's the what's broad the, evidence? The
1: big sweeping bro- sense yeah. of what's going on. The broad evidence is that uh, gender discrimination and sexual harassment and workplace harassment, which is not just targeted at women but targeted at men by mm-hmm. other men, primarily by the men, is um, as uh, is endemic. And right. pervasive. Well, I think now we're all used to the word endemic because that's what we're we're hoping COVID nineteen becomes. <laughs> yes, you know, yes, um, it's endemic. It's pervasive. It's a it's a it's a part of the cultural landscape in the in the music industry mm. to a, to a degree which I found shocking. And um, which means I, I think if you're a woman in the music industry, you can't have your, you can't have a career in the music industry without coming in contact with it. Mm. I think it's possible if you're a man in certain parts of the industry to not really come in contact with it but then I think sometimes as men we sort of famously famously don't pick up on some of the social cues we I mean, might even be in an environment where it's actually happening um and and miss the miss the dynamic because we're not really sort of paying attention mm. in a way that a woman would be paying attention mm. because in essence the women say, for example, in a social environment like a, an, an after an after gig function, or a, or, a, or a launch party, or a music event, you know, there's a there's a whole lot of social dynamics taking place. There's plenty of alcohol. People are well lubricated. It's a very friendly. It's a party space. And uh, what the women there report is that they're being essentially touched up and groped mm. by male executives who take the opportunity to just take the, the, um, the, a moment of greeting or a moment of saying hello, taking it a little bit that, that too far in terms mm. of the physical touch. And they all described it with the same language. They talked about the hand on the lower back, mm. you know, that lingers just that little bit too long. And, and then one participant said, look, if you're an observer, a casual observer to this event, you would go, gee, these people are all friends and that's mm. all innocent. You know, she said, and then she, you know, it's the kiss that strays too close to the lips, for Mm. example, was another participant, you know. So it looks like a greeting between work colleagues who know each other really well and are friends, but actually the women know what's going on. The women Mm. know they're being, they're, it's. I mean, it's sexual harassment. It's um, sexual, the definition of sexual harassment includes the notion of unwanted sexual attention. Mm. And so, my theoretical framework for looking at for looking at this the phenomena that I found was uh, developed by a, a fabulous academic uh, Louise Fitzgerald, her name is, and she basically said, "Look, it's a spectrum. It starts with um, you know gender discrimination and finishes at sexual coercion, and then if you take it by extension, it goes beyond there to sec- actual sexual assault, mm. and includes um, you know gendered gendered commentary." um uh you know gendered observations includes un- and then in there obviously is sexual object objectification um which obviously, which frequently leads to um gendered comments mm. like at gigs for example like show us your tits you know mm. that kind of comment mm. which is you know frequently there was that's a frequent that was a frequent that was frequently reported um to unwanted sexual attention where you know like this, touching up at the events where the man is doing, you know, um, giving unwanted sexual attention mm. to a woman so's not, she's not inviting this kind of behaviour, and then all the way through to sexual coercion, which is the classic quid pro quo. Harvey Weinstein, yeah. If you sleep with me, I'll get you into this movie. That, mm. um, that entire dynamic or I'm going to behave in a way that's inappropriate for you but if you actually talk about it or report it then I'll kill your career so yeah. that kind of um, uh, that's that's the that's the kind of I suppose if you were, I was going to say textbook but I mean they're all they're all textbook aren't they mm. and then mm. at the end of and then at the end of that spectrum for me of obviously is um, sexual assault mm. which is uh, so rape. So Fitzgerald sees it as a um, as her work was in the late 90s so she sees, she sees this as a, as a continuum and and I was I, I think that's a great taxonomy and it's a great and it's a great theoretical lens through which to view all of this behavior mm. because all of it therefore, all of it is sits on this continuum of gendered behavior, sexual objective all the way through to rape. So you can see that rape is in actual fact, Related, yeah. Which is important
0: because I think what um, people can do is say, "Oh, but it's not rape." You know, it's not sexual assault, so it wasn't. It wasn't really a problem, was it? You know. Yes. Whereas, and so that continuum—it's it, a continuum. It's related. Helps, helps us understand how these things are actually related, and often, not always, but often, I would imagine those early steps are, are, are testing the water sometimes
1: well um, um you know, in point of actual fact that's a that's a big thing that's, that was widely reported mm. so people will test the water and then what they'll do is they will behave in a way that's plausibly deniable mm. yeah and then and then um and then what they do is they will i mean there, there were so i had reports in the uh from in my data of uh people being essentially- ass- sexually assaulted not raped but assaulted, so that means that they were touched in a way that really breached all of their boundaries and there is um and i'm sure the new zealand law is the same in, in the state of new south wales we there's a strict definition uh, of sexual touching and so that that had, that goes on and then the and then what you get is the next day the guy comes up to the woman and says Look, i don't know what happened last night at the party i was really drunk i'm sorry i'm sorry and if i did anything inappropriate i really didn't i didn't mean it i have no i have no recollection and it's all this kind of um mm. and so there's this uh uh the environment the context the circumstances and then the kind and the form of the behavior is um, plausibly deniable because mm. then you know obviously it tests the water if she kind of goes, oh no, it was no problem, then the guy knows, well, we can take it to another mm. we can take it another step, you know. Mm. Um one
0: of the comments I think you make in in your thesis is uh, or, or there's an indication I think that this is more prevalent within the music industry. Than it seems on average within other workspaces. I, I don't I think there's probably more research that needs to be done across the board. Yeah. But um that seemed to be an indication from from your study. What what is it do you think about something like the music industry that makes it particularly vulnerable to this kind of behavior, perhaps a, apart from the booze? Hmm.
1: Okay, well, yeah, alcohol's alcohol and drugs obviously are a um an amplifying factor. Hmm. You know, because alcohol is a disinhibitor. Um and that's certainly the case even in live venues. But actually the two big things um, are um, misogyny and power imbalance. Mm. And, mm. and so um, without doubt in my mind, and when I, when I refer to misogyny, I think it's easy for people to misunderstand what that term means. A lot of people think misogyny means hatred of women. But misogyny is actually uh, an entrenched prejudice about women Right. which means um, essentially misogyny is a worldview and in the world in a, a, the worldview of it's a worldview which um, uh, which holds a belief that women are somehow subordinate mm. to men that essentially don't have the same kinds of equal rights as men um, and therefore it's it's permissible for a man to behave this way towards a woman because I'm a man she's a woman that's um that's a mis- that's a misogynist view mm. um so a lot there'd be a lot of people listening to this going i'm not comfortable with what he's just said <clears throat> sure. because um uh, misogyny if you think if you, re- if you if you regard misogyny as um if you regard misogyny as hatred of women it means that you know and of course you know um huge huge percentage of the male population would go honestly i don't hate women mm-hmm. But um, that's a. But it's a mistake to think of misogyny as mm. that.
0: Yeah,
1: it's a. It is a, a severe form of misogyny. But misogyny is in fact a prejudice. Um, in the same way that misandry is a prejudice mm. against men, on the part of people who have the have similar issues on the other side of the gender mm. divide. I hate using the term gender divide, but there it is. Mm. Um, so you may be uncomfortable with hearing this, but in in point of actual fact, um, if you in your belief system, uh, feel that women do not. At uh, deep down, there are ways in which women do not share the same rights as men, as human beings. Mm. then sadly, that's an example of misogyny. So, number one, misogyny. There is a group of uh, uh, old, dare I say it, old white men mm-hmm. who are at the heart of leadership in the music industry of in Australia and New Zealand, and um, and. They have created over the years, over decades, a culture of misogyny that is not just in, for example, record labels, uh, but it's in radio, it's mm-hmm. in uh, advertising, it's in PR, it's in bands. Band members uh, behave in ways that are misogynistic. I, I, you know, I think the relationship between, for example, band, band, the legendary Legendary stories about band members and groupies is problematic in that in that regard. Mm. Um, the um, uh, so it's that misogyny, and then you combine it with a massive power imbalance. Right. And the power imbalance in the music industry works like this: essentially, ninety percent of people who are artists in the music industry, artists or performers. Um, musicians, session players and so on make very little money from their work. They're doing it because they love it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then they support their artistic and creative um ambitions or drives with other work. You know? Um, and sometimes that goes down to that's that might, you know, you that might mean I want to be an artist or a guitarist, I want to be this, but what they're doing is they're teaching guitar. Stuff, yeah. you know eight days a week or, mm-hmm. or you know and they're doing all of that stuff or they work in a music store or they've got other work that actually some sometimes often it's music related work that keeps them afloat sometimes it's completely different work that keeps them afloat not very so very few people are actually making a living in in music but but for those who do as artists and and uh, assuming they are, are successful, those who actually win the prize make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So the the household names in the wheel here in music, generally speaking, are doing very, very, very well. And that's not just, um, you know, um, that's not just in New Zealand. That's in Australia. And they're doing actually so well that, you know, they don't really ever talk about how well they're doing. Mm-hmm. So that's the heart of the power. And the and the power lies in the people who can say yes to you. So mm. these are gatekeepers. So the industry is full of different kinds of gatekeepers at different levels. There's a gatekeeper, for example, who gives you, say you're let's say you're a female vocalist and you're trying to get into a band. Well, the people who can say yes to you getting into the band are gatekeeping that situation.
0: Yeah.
1: Or let's say you've got songs and you want to get them into you want to get them into the studio, you've got producers who who are gatekeeping access to the technology and the their skills and abilities that will actually turn your songs into something listenable. So they're gatekeeping too. But the but at the at the uh, at the, the the upper edge of the of the the economic tree, you know, where it's the, the big money is available, the the the, the, gla- the gatekeepers who mean anything are the um are the people who can sign you to a label, mm. uh, or the or the managers mm. who can give you access to the people who sign you to mm. a label, uh, and then of course there are other gatekeepers. There's other forms of gatekeeping. It's the people who curate Spotify. They used to be the people who were the program managers of radio stations, right, yeah. Um, and they still have a role. So there are various levels of gatekeeping going on in the industry, and in a, and then and then, of course, the number of people who actually get that sort of success, get access to that success, are actually remarkably few. Mm. Um, and what that means is that everybody knows everybody, so everybody's connected. So when you when it comes to the matter of sexual coercion. It's, a very, it's incredibly simple for somebody to say, I can, I can destroy your career with a word. Mm, right. So you need to sleep with me, otherwise your career is done. Mm. So uh, that's the power. The power is the power of access. Yeah. And, and, the, and the power is quite, is the power dynamic is extreme because there's no uh, representation. Uh, musicians don't have a union. They don't have an industrial a professional association. They don't have an industrial organization, and so when you don't have any form of collective bargaining power, and where the prize is so huge, and where the people who have access to the prize not only have the access, not only can they not only can they give you access to the the big prize, but what they can do is threaten that you'll never get even across the threshold.
0: Yeah. And, and the prize for for many artists is, is not eighty four million pounds that they really want. They want to be able to do their art in a way that is sustainable, and they're able to, you know, bring their voice to the to the to the people who want to hear. It. You know, that's
1: so many of them are just happy to make a living. Yeah, yeah exactly. That. Yeah, but 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 the gatekeeping to even get to that point yeah. is uh, is significant.
0: So um, so we've got these two things here that you're, you're speaking about: the power imbalance and then yes. the misogyny. And it seems that the power imbalance is something that, to some degree, everybody is vulnerable to those gatekeepers. Yes. But combine that with the misogyny, and then you get a particular shape to that, which is obviously has a big impact on in, in a gender specific way. Yes. Um, yeah. Is that a, is that a accurate? That's exactly. Reading? That's, yeah. a,
1: that's a really great summary of it. And mm. the problem here's the thing: it's not this. These problems are not unique to the music industry, mm. as you've just said. Everybody's vulnerable. Everybody's vulnerable to power imbalance. Mm. And we sort of, as a society, we sort of know that because what we do is we have sort of checks and balances, don't we? Yeah. Um, we have checks and balances throughout. I'm, I'm now talking about Western dem- democracies. There are checks and balances mm-hmm. to power. Um, uh, literally, we get to overthrow the government every every three to four years <laughs> yeah. if we want to. Yeah. Um, in an election process. Yeah. Um and even in governments there's there are balances of power imbalances and imbalances of power. So or the you know the imbalance of power is obviously a government is in government and they wield they have the power of the public purse. But in Western democracies like New Zealand, like Australia, um, and you know, like the United Kingdom, the judiciary is separate. So the judiciary is mm-hmm. uh and that's the design. The design is the judiciary is independent. So that means the judiciary can hold a government accountable, mm. but it's as I said, not a perfect system. But there are no checks and balances in the music industry. Right? Yeah. <laughs> there's no. There's no offset. Mm. If you go and work for a bank, for example, there's a union. So mm-hmm. the union actually will take the will take a bank to an industrial court, mm. and then the and then a, and then a judge who is again an independent mm. person will make a determination, and then the the company has to the business has to respond. Um, and because of the,
0: these gatekeepers are involved in the music industry, even if you, well, I, I'd be interested, I'm, I'm assuming this, is, I'm assuming just from my own experience and anecdotes that this would be the case, even if you was, and I know this is the case again in, in different spheres, if you were to, um, to protest some kind of behavior toward you, harassment, um, assault, you know, or, or along that whole spectrum. Um even if you were to get people to pay attention, now you, again, you don't have like an HR department or a, even to go to, right? You're just a you're just a an artist who's trying to make it. Um, yep. So you don't have those people necessarily to appeal to. Even if you did, or even if you've got a space where you can um, say something about it, um, because of the connectedness that you're talking about before, and the fact that those gatekeepers are still so important, your your reputation essentially becomes tainted even if no, you are shown
1: to be I'm curious. not just no I'm not just tainted um, your reputation can be destroyed mm, right um uh, so it's the end of your career and one yeah. of the reason one of the reasons why um really prominent artists haven't spoken out um in these um in about these circumstances even though they've known about it everybody every, look in the Australian music industry everybody's known well, mm. there's a a prominent CEO of a major record company basically was sort of Pushed out of his job, or stepped down, or asked to step aside, um, and um, that's not going to take any of it. I mean, that's it's public; it's public knowledge. So that's Dennis Hanlon from Sony Music Australia. But everybody knew about his behaviour for years. But why were people not able to? Why didn't? Why didn't? Why didn't prominent artists speak out? Well, because at the end of the day, power is not um, immediately easily quantifiable. Mm. Yeah, and it's a and power. Now we're starting to get. Now we need to. Now we'd be having a discussion that relates to the work Uh of um, uh, Pierre Bourdieu or 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 Foucault, Mm. um, who who analyzed the way power works, and who sort of try and theorize the way power works. Mm. Uh, Power is fluid, and is a slippery a slippery thing mm. and often comes down to the, the um what people believe right so sure. i um i use a tool to analyze power that rely uh, a theoretical tool that um is used to describe power dynamics power relations in small networks in small social networks which is um uh, exactly what is going on in the music industry. Yeah. Actually, to be honest, it's exactly what's going on everywhere because as, as much as we live in a large society, as much as we live in a, a, a nation of what's well, the na- how big is New Zealand? Five million people. Even though we live in a nation of five million people, we don't connect or know or network with all those five million mm. people no matter how big your Facebook page is. And re- our reality, our social circles are still quite tight and quite small and so... What that means is everybody exists inside small social networks and then everybody who's worked at a small to medium enterprise understands the power of small social networks. Mm. And and even if you work in government, it's still, you know, you you know that it's a small social network because, okay, so now you work in the New Zealand Public Service, but you don't work in the New Zealand Public Service, you work in a department in the New Zealand Public Service and you might work in a very specialised way, uh, in the same, in any large organisation, there are there are there are small, powerful, power, and people who are in positions of being able to say yes to you or no to you mm. are able to exercise power. It wouldn't matter what you. Uh, it wouldn't matter what social construct we were looking at. We could be looking at an employment construct. Mm. We could be looking at a sporting club, mm. and so people take get their power and they bully with it. Yeah. They bully and they abuse with it, and I, I guess everybody listening will be going, "Oh man I, I I can recall i know I can recall being bullied at my sporting association mm. I can be I've, I've been bullied you can be a member of a political party i've been bullied in a political party meeting mm. you know i've been bullied by a local politician or I've been bullied in my you know we think of bullying as something that just takes place in the schoolyard it's just that I think that bullies learn their craft there mm. Um, I, um, you know, I personally, for example, many many years ago, experienced a five year period of bullying in a church. So bullying happens everywhere. The harassment happens everywhere, mm. and 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 the, the and I have a personal view on this, by the way, that because we've suddenly sort of shifted suddenly a, into, from a discussion on sexual harassment to a discussion on power. Mm. And this is where I want to bring sexual harassment and workplace harassment, which is traditionally thought of as bullying, mm. together because both of those behaviours are a phenomenon of, a phenomena of power. Mm. So bullying only happens where there is a major power imbalance. Sexual harassment only happens where there's a power imbalance. Uh, but sexual harassment is coupled with misogyny, mm. which is a, a, a world view that this woman is a sexual object. And I think, you uh, know, um, this needs further research, right, Michael, but I think that bullying, workplace harassment also happens because of a kind of a dehumanisation mm. of the other. Mm. You, um, and researchers like to refer to this as othering, you know. Yeah. Okay for me to bully them because they are, um, you know, a worker or...
0: And then uh, you have this really fascinating, and perhaps we are diverging here a little bit, but I think it's interesting and really helpful, Um have this fascinating situation where someone sometimes who was, let's say, they were an intern in an organisation and were bullied as an intern, essentially. You know, they were, they were taken advantage of in all sorts yes. of different ways. Um, and, but then they, for whatever reason, they're the small percentage who survive that internship and come through and, and sort of make it in, in whatever sphere they're in. Um, then, um, can, it seems in my experience... Can be quite susceptible to saying, "Well, I had to go through that, and therefore that's like the pathway through." And so now I'm going to do the same. Do you, do you know what I mean?
1: Oh, absolutely. I have anecdotal. There's anecdotal evidence that that actually takes place in the acting world, in particular mm-hmm. in the in the tertiary sector of acting education. Right. And that's regarded as a. This is the sort of rite of passage. I. This is what happened to me. So this is mm. what happens to you. Mm. Um, I have anecdotal evidence. There's anecdotal evidence of that. In fact, in, in fact, what I'm in the process of doing is raising funds for a, a, a larger research project that will actually look at the entertainment industry more holistically, not mm. just the music industry. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I have anecdotal evidence of that. I've got anecdotal evidence of it. Well, for sure, it's actually well reported in the health industry. Right. Um, it's it? well reported, yeah, amongst, um, you know, because, for example, surgeons... Uh, have to go through a process of internship mm-hmm. to become surgeons to get into the specialty, and then the, the surgeons who were there, not just surgeons, nurses um, in fact in the in the field of workplace bullying, there is so much research being done on bullying by nurses to other to junior nurses mm. and bullying by doctors to other health staff that it sort of forms a huge subset of the work of workplace harassment research. Wow. Mm. So for sure it's and what you're now talking to what you're now speaking about is oh this is the culture of the industry mm. that I'm in. Mm. This is the norm. So so bullying has become normalized in these industries. And so bu- bullying and harassment and sexual harassment workplace harassment and sexual harassment have been normalized in the music industry. Mm. This is how it was been this is how it's mm. always been. So then, people would say,
0: "You." I'd imagine you would hear things like, "Well, look, that's just the nature of the business. This is what you have to deal with. If you're going to make it here, you have to toughen up. Um, you have to learn to hold your own." Is it? Yeah. Is that fair? Yep. Yeah.
1: Like it up, princess. Same yeah. words to that. If words, if not exactly the same, but to mm-hmm. that effect, for mm-hmm. sure.
0: Um, one of the one of the phrases you use in in your research is this idea of shattered assumptions. Yes. Um, you use that. There. Could you could you maybe talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's quite a helpful um, phrase or, or way of a hook into thinking about um, people's experience. Um, and I think a lot of the listeners for this podcast in various spaces in their life, whether they be um, religious or, or elsewhere, have, have may have experienced that sense of shattered assumption. So could you talk us through that a little bit?
1: Yes, I can. So um, the yeah. shattered assumptions theory actually was proposed by a psychologist named Yanoff Bullman. Um, split surname. Uh, essentially Yanov Bulman and uh, his colleagues were looking at uh, victims of trauma and they noted that um, people hold, uh, they hold basic assumptions about the goodness of the world. And I think this is actually true even of um, people in religious contexts who still may have, for example, in the Christian context, an idea of original sin. Even in, within the context of an idea of original sin, they still basically hold a view that people are, are basically good. That is, you can see the way they live. We live, we, we essentially live with each other on, the, on a, in a kind of a trust set of trust relationships, and mm. we trust people. Uh, and there are ways in which we sort of trust people kind of less. You know, penalties for shoplifting, for example. Um, but even any it's, it's, it's easy to shoplift you know um, people don't do it generally speaking because there's this overarching assumption of the of beneficence you mm. know um, and what Yaoff Bullman found was that following trauma real trauma like um you know post post traumatic stress disorder trauma a you know violence seeing the death of a loved one that sort of kind of mm. trauma you know um, that they that those experiences shattered their assumptions of the goodness of the world, mm. so their assumptions about people and their assumptions about the world were um, uh, were destroyed essentially by the traumatic event. Now the reason that this is important is well, so you can understand, for example I'm right now we're right now we're witnessing the ukraine so whatever assumptions you held about um uh, whatever assumptions were held about Vladimir Putin are, are obviously, if you held positive assumptions, as many did, those assumptions have to be suffering some. Um, they have to be suffering some uh, interrogation. You have to be interrogating your own assumptions mm-hmm. about it. You have to be. But um, the people in Ukraine who've been bombed and shelled and their kids have been killed now, now they are. Are trauma victims, and what's going to happen to them down the track is um, people who are living with them and working with them and take, helping them through, you know, their lives in a long time after this crisis is over, are going to be dealing with the fact that they no longer have the same trust in the world and they no longer have the same trust in people that mm. they used to have. Mm. <clears throat> Those events, one singular event, a missile slamming into a building, um, is going to is going to destroy their ability to trust. Mm in a very fundamental ways. So uh, the reason this is important is because um, Janoff Bullman noted that amongst bullying victims, um, that people who have been bullied and by extension people who have experienced sexual harassment show signs of post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. And so what we actually have is an after effect of being bullied or sexually harassed in which our ability to trust and believe in the world is forever damaged. Mm. And so it, this uh, the consequences and severe instances of, um, you know, bullying, which have, for example, uh, you know, my personal instance was a, a, a five-year episode. Um, severe instances leave a long um, mark on your soul. Mm. And that shattered assumption. We, you come to, first of all. You it shatters your assumptions about yourself because one of the things that happens to you when you are, and this is a common experience, um, victims of victims of sexual assault, one, um, often blame themselves initially. Mm. Uh, victims of bullying often blame themselves. It's a very pernicious kind of action, actually. The, the act of bullying somebody or harassing somebody because one of the things that they do is they doubt their own abilities they doubt themselves mm. and often the way they, that that harassment is done
0: yep. by the perpetrator is done in a way to make the person doubt their own version of events as well um
1: the entire the entire strategy an entire strategy of workplace harassment of different forms of workplace harassment is to make you doubt yourself mm. it's a kind of a it's a kind of a longitudinal gaslighting right um so um so people doubt themselves, so it shatters their, their belief in themselves, it shatters their confidence um, to the extent that um, many people at that point like, leave their occupations, leave their work, leave the environment they' are in, they leave, they make entire career choices based upon the bullying, the experiences of being bullied and the experiences of being harassed. Um, then they, and then of course, they lose trust and they, uh, in, and they lose their ability to believe in the people in the goodness of people. Mm. So then that becomes a major issue for their relationships, their, working, their professional relationships, their um, collegiate relationships, their friendship relationships, their intimate partner relationships, depending upon the nature of the bullying, depending where it occurred, mm. how it occurred, who was the perpetrator. Um, and so what that does is damage people's ability to actually conduct rela- the relationships that the rest of us enjoy. Mm. Because as I said earlier, based on this kind of un- um, an assumption of trust, that people will basically behave well that gets destroyed, and then of course, you have larger you know a larger shattering of assumptions, a belief in the, in, a, in a, the benign or a positive nature of the universe or a positive nature mm. of the world, or even a benign even a view that it's benign, so that that, that the world is constantly a threat to them. Mm. And being so that for in the music industry that meant that the music industry meant means for a lot of women that it's a place it's constantly a place of threat mm. um, and in places where there's um, power imbalance and worldview rigid worldviews that dehumanize worldviews that dehumanize and object objectify are people who are in those environments actually emerge from the from them um, traumatized to the extent that they won 't they 're triggered by it they won 't go back right yeah people leave these environments and will not go back people have left careers and won 't go back people have left social social institutions and not gone back people have left cultural institutions and not gone back people have left um, uh, people have left churches and, and won 't mm-hmm. go back people have left um, em, employment and won 't go back to they change they change completely people have been abused for example in in the health industry, they won't go back. And it's even sometimes re-traumatizing them just to go, just to visit the hospital or just to visit a doctor.
0: Right, yeah. So, um, this, they get triggered.
1: Yeah, They're yeah, triggered like, Yeah, yeah,
0: and, it, and it's triggering trauma, right? Trauma and trauma responses in the body. And and it's, you know, this is the kind of thing, because again, the, the downplaying of some of this stuff can be, well, oh, that was, that was however many years ago now, or that was, that wasn't in this context, so um, you know all of right. these ways to, to downplay someone's experience.
1: Um, when, yeah, and to and, minimize to yeah. minimize it, and in one sense it's sort of a part of the process of dehumanizing, mm. and 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 the other thing is, of course, in the spectrum of all humanity, we all deal with these things differently, yeah. and so it's easy for somebody to go, "Oh, you should toughen up," you know. Look at so and so; they've been they've handled it such and such a way. Exactly. Um, yeah. But I'm a great subscriber to when, to the bell curve when we start to look at um, uh, social structures on a, on a larger scale. And I'm talking about, you know, beyond, I suppose, beyond 100 or 200 people. Mm. There's a bell curve, not even beyond 100, even in 200 people there's a bell curve going on. It's a bell curve in height, there's a bell curve in, um, you know, in body shape, there's a bell curve in, you know, aptitude, for various things there's a I mean I was never good at sports so there's a sporting aptitude bell curve you know um, there's a music aptitude bell curve you know there's a a, a, a linguistic aptitude bell curve all of these things um, and so when it comes to our how we cope with um, debilitating and crisis situations there's a bell curve in response mm, mm. and that doesn't mean that people are weak it just means that um, their wiring is not the same. Mm. So I I believe, uh, you know, if I have a message for anybody, it's a message for people who lead any kind of social group at all, or cultural group at all, whether that's formal or informal. If it's a formal leadership or informal leadership, you need to really tread carefully. Mm. Unless, of course, your business is in destroying people, so then don't tread carefully.
0: All of these things are intersected, right? These layers of that, of power, of misogyny, of racism, of um, dehumanisation, of othering uh, these are these are all, I guess, coming at coming at this this problem from a number of different angles that are all yes. intersecting and, and, and related to one another.
1: Yes, um, they are.
0: You'll know that uh, you know a number of listeners to this podcast have had uh, difficult experiences, say even within like religious context and stuff like that. Um, yeah. One of the interesting things to me is that <sighs> it almost seems like even as sort of the Me Too movement emerged uh, and there's there's been more conversations about um, abuse of power and stuff like that, there's also been in some sections and across the board um, and also within even religious spaces of a sort of a doubling down on that kind of more powerful, successful, narcissistic leader. Um, certainly America has given us some um, fine examples of that. Um, do you have any sense of what's kind of going on here? What is this kind of... What is this desire, perhaps, for the for this kind of? Some people talk about a toxic masculinity, for example. um yes. Whether that's the best phrase or not, what, what's what do you think is kind of going on here? What 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 was happening for us?
1: Well, I think religious organisations are social, so uh, a social organisation slash and cultural organisations, mm. um, like in, um, like any other. Uh, you know, of course, they have a special purpose, and people join and become a part of it because of their belief, their worldview and they join and become part of it for, you know, really valid reasons, you know, which are to do with their, you know, how they how they view, the, um, you know, I mean, look, I don't want to delve because I'm not a theologian, I don't want to delve into this, but everybody in a sense has a theology. Everybody has mm-hmm. a, a, that is, they have a, a framework of belief about the structure of the universe and even if your theology is that God doesn't exist, that's still in one sense a theology. Mm-hmm. You know? So... You know because of people's you know people join together in churches because of theology. people join together in churches because of sacred texts. they join because of deep sense of meaning to these things. Uh, and and then what happens is we form organizations to ha- to, I guess to harness the power of that coming together, that mm. gathering, that gathering. and and to be able to direct it in, in positive ways, hopefully positive ways. Um so what's happening to in church leadership is is what's happening like church leadership is not immune to to mm. the to all of the other uh drivers and factors that affect leadership in any other organization mm. but it's um in fact if church leaders think that they're somehow special because they are acting on behalf of the divine then they Then they've completely uh and they've completely deluded. Actually, that's a delusion. Mm. It's a, um, it's a delusion that you are that as a human being, you've become more special because of because of your relationship to the people that you are leading. Mm. Even if your intention is to lead them closer to God, it's delusional to think that you are somehow more special. Mm. What you are is leading them, mm. and leadership is subject to the same uh, criteria. Everywhere, mm. right? And I'm pretty sure that somewhere um, in, in the uh, in the New Testament record of um, Jesus' um, utterings, he was um, made a point of, of selecting people who were teachers and pointing to their hypocrisy. Mm. And sort of so I'm something like woe to you. Um, yeah, you scribes and Pharisees. So uh, as if it's almost as if in that moment he was articulating that there is a responsibility that comes with the position. Mm. Um, and I think I recall also somewhere in um somewhere in the New Testament scriptures, Tim was being given much will be expected, you know, Tim has mm-hmm. been given much, much will be expected. So I feel as if the biblical account um, essentially backs up the what we now think of as the cultural and social account. I mean, the the, the actual phrase with great power comes great responsibility uh, is uh, the, that's the gospel according to Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> that was actually first articulated, I think, in a Stan Lee comic. Right, yep. Um, and so it's Spider Man. It's, mm. it's his early, early phases of his uh, morph, you know, morph metamorphosis. Mm. Um, so, and he realizes that he's been given great power, so that it becomes with great responsibility. But that, in one sense, is an art, is an articulation of the of the d- dynamic between authority and responsibility. That is sort of like leadership one hundred and one. If you have, if you give somebody. Um, authority. They must be responsible. They must be made accountable. Mm. If you if you give somebody um, if you give somebody responsibility and they're not accountable, then you've created a tyrant. If you give somebody responsibility for something but you haven't given them the authority, then you've that's a recipe for burnout, mm. which is the other side of that leadership mm. coin. Um, and so I think so. I'm all of that to say that what churches have done, I I believe historically, uh, not just recently. Is to essentially try and experiment with different ways of um, addressing that authority responsibility question, um, you know, with differing degrees of success. Mm-hmm. And so, different church models. I think I'm, I'm thinking of, for example, some of the more what would be thought of as more traditional church models. Um, the the person who is the CEO of the church effectively the pastor of the church or the minister of the church? The reverend is appointed by a church council and could be removed by the church council. So that's the parish. So there's a kind of a a power sharing dynamic mm-hmm. in which there is meant to be obviously a relationship and there's meant to be a kind of a synergy between those two groups: the parish council and then the the, the minister. You know, um, in some cases um we see so for example in the roman catholic church we see a situation where there is an all-powerful pope who is um appointed or elected from amongst the college of cardinals and then the pope you know wields enormous cultural and social power but what we're given to understand is inside the vatican there are this there is an enormous political web at play which can if you know for certain for some popes for example can Undermine your undermine the papacy, or can mm. you know you know effectively? Um, so effectively, there the there are there are these complex power structures at the top of the Catholic Church, even though you tend to think of the Pope as being all powerful in the Catholic sure, Church. Yeah, um, but then what we've realised, obviously, here is that that even the power in the Catholic Church is diffused amongst different mm. dioceses. Mm. So, a, 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 so a cardinal who was you know who has this uh, leadership power over a diocese has an enormous amount of power within the region you know mm. uh but the recent uh but the recent and ongoing stories of abuse of children by catholic clergy uh within uh, different dioceses across the world and notably boston obviously that was the that was the uh Subject of the movie Spotlight, but also notably here in Australia, shows that the the um, that the, the Catholic Church has, has created power structures that are designed to be able to create centres of power where there is great inequality, but at the same time great diffusion of responsibility. Mm. So that means that when you start to come back against one of those particular priests, it's the, the 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 responsibility mechanisms aren't as strong, which is why I think you see in that tradition um you, what you see is there's been this uh litany <laughs> what a word to use mm. there's a litany of um abuse stories i mm. mean it's they're, and they're ongoing and they and they and they um and they are causing enormous damage to the social power and reputation and cultural power of the catholic church mm. and not and not the least of which is the way in which those accusations have been treated by which is Senior power figures have resisted
0: yeah.
1: um, bringing bringing those who have had power and misused it to to account. Now, this is not to say that the entire Catholic Church is corrupt. Um, it, um, let's not have that discussion. But what it shows is that um, it, that in church contexts, it is possible for people to wield enormous amounts of power, even though a local priest, for example, doesn't have great financial power mm. that priest has an enormous amount of cultural and social power mm. over vulnerable people mm. and then ultimately they have the power of excommunication which is we are so and people who are involved and want to be committed to those church structures and those church in social groups and the church and everything that it means to them it's incredibly valuable to them it's incredibly valuable to their life what that actually what that actually means is there is the the There is the power lies in the value that the people hold. Mm, mm. And so you could just threaten somebody, with we're taking you out of fellowship. And that is enough, maybe, that's enough to make people submit. Mm. It's it's extraordinary. And I think um, in the more contemporary church structures, the ones that have hit the news lately, I'm talking about, I guess, um, uh, Hillsong, in fact, is in the news. Um, um, And there are plenty of examples, as you mentioned, of the American churches that are, Structured on a much more um, corporate model, in which the CEO wields enormous power, mm. but there is a board that is in, in meant to keep them in check. But um, I, I think contemporary those contemporary churches more closely resemble Silicon Valley startups, right? That are that um, that uh, have. Um, Legendary founders so we're talking about facebook mm-hmm. um, and so in Facebook, Zuckerberg wields enormous power, and there is a board by the way that keeps meant to keep Zuckerberg in check. but how much power does a board actually have over somebody like Zuckerberg mm. and so how much power if you 've got a charismatic uh, popular powerful um, attractive Figurehead who runs the church. How much power does a board have to remove mm. them? I mean, you can have a church, for example, that um, starts with nothing and then goes to being a, a sort of an institution, much like Hillsong has. I mean, this is all we're talking about. Something that's happened on mm. over a space of twenty or thirty years, and there are numerous one, uh, churches like this all over the mm. all over the United States. There are numerous other churches like this in New Zealand and Australia. How much? But how much power does a board actually have to remove that person? Mm. They have the legal power, but what are the implications? Because the individual themselves wield enormous amounts of. Time yeah, and they that.
0: are so central to that entire institution holding
1: together. Right. They're to, they're, yeah. in, in, they're incredibly they're incredibly central. They're vitally central, mm. and ultimately, I mean, ultimately, churches have to survive financially. Mm. They're ultimately central to the financial operation. They're, they're central to the finances. Mm. Of the entire of the entire corporation, when they start to do things like buy huge plots of land and big big buildings, and and suddenly, you have also got the people who are running the boards have actually also got a debt, a cash flow debt, and cash flow and debt yep. burden to manage yeah. and all those sorts of things. So um, the uh, the difficulty always comes down to accountability. Mm. Now, um, we also, we, we, you know that this doesn't mean that every church leader is a, is a toxic, as is toxic mm. uh, because um, you know the thing is there are places in the music industry where there is a great imbalance of power, but the people who are actually the gatekeepers are wielding it with a kind of nobility of mm. purpose. Right. and they're wielding it in with good character. And they are the same with Silicon Valley startups that become huge. Um, you know the uh, the leaders become influential; they become uh, impossible to dislodge. But you know some of them are operating with with great um, some of them are operating with great nobility of purpose. Now, um, that said, even inside the, the, you know some iconic institutions, now what is emerging from those Silicon Valley startups are stories of bullying mm. and stories of to- you know toxic leadership. You know, and I think um, it's going to be interesting in the future to see as things begin to morph and change because there's going to be an evolution of leadership structures. The current models that we have that we got from America were really a reaction to uh, church structures, I think, in the 1950s. Yeah. And so what we're going to see is generational change and there's a whole bunch of people who are experiencing church and who might have been marginalised by um, authoritarian leadership models, and who will start something different, and, and there'll be another experiment in how to mm. structure. And there'll be another. And I, I guess it's, it'll be in a, it's. If I describe it this way, every time you start an organisation, whether it's a church organisation, a charity, a business, a company, there are all these established models that you've got, but every which you can then adopt. But every single time you're doing it, you are conducting an adventure in how to manage authority. Mm. And responsibility. It's an adventure, in how to do that.
0: Yeah, and you know, I think sometimes, sometimes our response to to the abuse of power that we see in all of these ways, um, whether that's in the music industry, religious spaces, corporate spaces, wherever, um, is to essentially try to eliminate power. So we say, right, let's let's take power away. And um, and although I'm you know I'm generally a believer in much flatter power structures than than the than the hierarchical top-down ones, uh, the danger sometimes, I think, in doing that is that you're now pretending there's no power when there still is, um, which potentially makes you even, you know, just as vulnerable, if not more vulnerable to it. Um, and so we, we've got to have a reckoning with power and actually come face-to-face with it, it seems
1: to me. Um, um, you're absolutely correct, Michael. Mm. Absolutely correct. It's naive to think that there um, – I, I, I like you, I am a believer in – the flatter power structures um, across all organizations uh so you know that would be church organizations mm-hmm. that would be charities that's cultural groups and the reason i think the reason for it is that in the human frame i don't think is well suited to having unrestricted power yeah. we just don't yeah. cope with it well yeah Power corrupts. This is the saying. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, and I think we're all equally vulnerable to the, corrupt, the corrupting influence mm. of um, unrestricted power. So I, I like you. I'm a fan of flat power structures, flatter authority. You know, flatter mm. organizational structures in general. But I completely agree. We have to reckon with it. Mm we can't ignore it and we have to give consideration to power dynamics not and and, and that's across the so what hap, what happens for example when we give more power what happens when we and and how does how does power get acquired mm. and what kind of power exists so um in a spiritual in a in a spiritual community which a church I think ostensibly is then, for example, people who have, who evince or demonstrate more spirituality have a cultural power mm. that's attached to them. The whole guru, the whole guru yeah, thing, thing, yeah, is a kind of a gatekeeping power. Yeah. I'm the only one, for example, who can get you signed to Sony Music. Mm. I'm the only one who can get your song to the number one. Mm. And I, because I've done it three or four times before, you know. Or, um you know or, or you know it's a bit a bit like um I you know I'm the I'm the spiritual expert I'm the one who can lead you to God mm. I'm the one who can give you the true revelation mm. I alone for example I'm I alone am the one who should correctly interpret the scripture mm. you know I'm the I am the fount of all wisdom and revelation for this church for example yeah you know um, I alone can fix it. Donald Trump. And and classic. That's exactly what I was thinking
0: of from that speech. Um,
1: so, you know, I just drawing comparisons mm. in terms of, because when, when we discuss power, you have, we need to start thinking about the various forms it takes. Mm. And and so the guru, um, the power of guru, the power of the expert, so-called expert is, a, you know, a substantial power.
0: Mm. So maybe and sort of bringing this conversation full circle to some degree, um, <laughs> let's... Let's return to misogyny for a moment then. Yes, um, yes. What, do you have any sense of of, of what we, and I know we're having this conversation as two, two guys, two, two men, you know. Um, what What is the path forward in terms of tackling the kind of misogynistic cultures that we see um, built in all sorts of organisations, whether that's music industry and, and elsewhere? You know, how do we, how do we, tackle this. Do you have any thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is one of the thorny problems. I, um, um, I don't have specific thoughts, but I've got like a big idea, it's sort of two big ideas really. And the one, one big idea stems from um, this notion that we change people's behaviour um, by using a carrot, the carrot and the stick. There's two things that, we, that people generally respond to if that is if we don't if we don't we have to address the issue of changing people's belief mm. but changing people's beliefs is a um is a notoriously difficult thing to do mm. and the reason it's notoriously difficult is because uh we all as a as a product of our own uh confirmation biases reject information which which contradicts our beliefs even if our beliefs are wrong mm which is why flat earthers exist right yeah yeah um and they persistently just go no no, and this is why no no, the earth is flat and this is just all a um this is all a conspiracy and which is why conspiracy theorists exist, mm-hmm. which is why people get in cults and you can't get them out yeah um so changing belief is a but changing people's belief is a huge undertaking and it's a it's a um I think ultimately. It's a long-term project that we are in, that we need to be engaged in, and it's and starts obviously with education, uh, but it also starts with but it also then progresses to experience. So people, it's not enough to say you know women and men should be equal, but it come but it also comes down to experience. And then so what we're looking at is a real longitudinal process, uh, and then part of it is. Um, Cult, so it's not so it's not just changing beliefs; it's actually cultural change and mm. culture, because culture is so um, profoundly and irrevocably tied up with what we believe anyway. So yeah. it's on the so I guess what I would say is it's in, on an individual level it's changing people's beliefs, on a societal level it's changing culture, or an organisational level it's changing culture, and we know that culture is hard to shift particularly if it's been the same thing for 10 years or mm. 20 years or 30 years and people have profited from that culture and have mm. risen up in that culture, then even if you come in and change the culture, they'll resist the change and they and resist cultural change mostly by um, subversion, mm. you know. So I, I wish I had a happier answer. But it's um, I think it's, a, it's like a, a 50 or 60-year journey mm. or longer. Mm. And in the case of... Um, your work as a theologian, for example, and in the community in which you're working in, I think that 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 group has come late to that discussion. Yeah, yeah, one of the things I think that um,
0: religious communities can do and churches can do is, and one of the reasons they're much slower to hear is because they've attached maybe spiritual beliefs, theological arguments to that, worldview that says that, for example, women are subordinate. Uh, and so that becomes another layer to unpick um, for people within those communities.
1: Um, yeah, and if they've attached that to um, Scripture. And yeah, and this is what God says, yes. Right, so then it's, 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 it's doctrine, right?
0: Yeah, and, and I think, you know, what this speaks to, or the, the kind of the downstream impact of, of that is that you end up with this kind of desire for... A kind of fundamental certainty, a, f- a very fixed way of thinking about faith, um, that then does flow into these other spaces that we've been talking about, and through this whole conversation, it means yeah. that those those structures and systems that actually we've culturally developed, um, systems of power, systems of of um, misogyny, uh, patriarchy, uh, and and all sorts of others, uh, yeah. you know, we've developed those and then culturated them within, and, and sort of baptised them in... in into our very fixed system, and then feel deeply under threat when they become challenged or questioned, or uh, and that's and that has you know very harmful uh, results. Hey, thank you so much for this conversation. It's uh, Michael, it's a pleasure. We've covered a lot of territory. We sure um, have, and and these threads kind of all interweave together in, in ways that I think matter deeply. Um. They matter deeply for us It's kind of large cultural, cultural, social, political, religious levels, and they matter deeply for the individuals that are um, affected by the kind of stuff that we've been talking about. Um, yep. So, yeah, I, look, I, I appreciate the the opportunity to talk talk it through. Thank you. It's been fun. Yeah, it's been fun talking to you. It's been great. So that was my conversation with Dr. Jeff. Crabtree, there's a lot in there and you know some of it's pretty heavy and I think it leaves us with a lot to think about but it's important and it's important not just in abstract ponderings about power it's about real lives it's about suffering it's about uh, about what happens when people use and abuse others and we must find ways forward that lead us on a different path Thanks as always to Rhys Michelle for his audiological skills making this sound good in your ear holes um, until next time